You're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. On this episode brought to you by CSL Baring, we'll discuss some key takeaways from the updated European Academy of Neurology and Peripheral Nerve Society, or EANPNS, guidelines on the diagnosis and treatment of chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, or CIDP, with Dr. Chiwa Fan. She's an assistant professor of neurology at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine in Richmond. Here's Dr. Fan now. The two types of CIDP described in the updated guidelines are typical CIDP versus CIDP variants. And in the prior guidelines, they were more lumped all together as atypical CIDP. For the distinction, there's implications for differential diagnosis, treatment choice, and treatment response. So, for example, in typical CIDP, you'd expect uh, symmetric weakness, sensory changes, proximally and distally. And for CIDP variants, for the distal predominant type variants, for example, anti-MAG doesn't respond very well to IBIG or IB steroids. The updated guidelines really go through an algorithm with clinical criteria being the foundation. So focusing on the typical CIDP, the clinical criteria is that you need to have weakness as well as sensory changes. For the tempo, you need to be progressive over eight weeks. The pattern needs to be proximally and distally in at least two limbs, and you should be areflexic or at least decreased reflexes in, the, in all the limbs affected. For building on top of the clinical criteria, you should also have electrodiagnostic confirmation. For CIDP, you should have two nerves affected, motor nerves with demyelinating criteria versus possible CIDP, which is only one motor nerve or two sensory nerves being abnormal. For some patients, that's up to 20%. If you have the clinical picture suggestive of CIDP, but the electrodiagnostic doesn't meet the minimum requirements, so for example, you can't get a diagnosis of possible CIDP, then you can do additional supportive testing, which is usually more invasive and carries more risk. And this would include imaging, spinal fluid, nerve biopsy, and you need to have objective treatment response with clinically meaningful changes. So the objective treatment response, you look at two domains. So one is disability, which means some form of loss of function. And this can be a patient survey like ROTS or NCAT. And then number two is impairment, which means they need to have an abnormal exam. And this can be measured by grip strength or MRC sum score. There's a lot of different scores that are developed out there. And I try and find the score that's one most consistent and most applicable to capture the biggest aspect of functional loss for my patient. And that's part of the fun and rewarding aspect of treating patients with CIDP. And then for CIDP variants, again, you're really, really focusing a foundation on the clinical pattern. There's two really good flowcharts that I would really encourage you to look at. And the first flowchart breaks it down by clinical pattern, differential diagnosis, and then the subsequent diagnostic algorithm. And the second flowchart for CDP variants, it really emphasizes that diagnosis is an ongoing and evolving process. So there's three main first-line treatments for CIDP, and that's steroids, immunoglobulins, and plasmapheresis. We'll take it one at a time. For steroids, it can be pulsed or daily. The route can be IV or oral. We don't really know the best dosing regimen, and you kind of want to watch out for side effects and do what logistically makes the most sense and monitor for side effects 
from the dosing or the administration. You do want to monitor for treatment response. So for steroids, you should see some form of objective improvement in a couple of weeks to a very few months. And you want to make sure that they're showing objective treatment response within that time. For number two, immunoglobulins, you would do a loading dose and then continue with the maintenance versus reload. For immunoglobulins, you do want to minimize the wearing off phenomenon, which contributes to a lot of anxiety in patients with immune inflammatory diseases. And once you get the patient stabilized or really optimized, you want to find the minimum dosing amount as well as the longest dosing interval. So basically the least treatment burden for the patient. There's not really a preference for IVIG versus steroids as first-line therapy and the way that I decide is consider contraindications. Is there a reason that they shouldn't get steroids if they have uncontrolled diabetes, for example, or if they shouldn't get immunoglobulins if they have a lot of history of strokes or coronary disease, for example. And then for our third main treatment option, plasmapheresis, it's obviously much more invasive than steroids or immunoglobulins. And you'd start probably two to three times per week for a couple of weeks and then slowly taper down. And you'd expect to see a treatment response within a couple of weeks. The maintenance treatment for IVIG for CIDP, assuming that you've already done the loading dose of two grams per kilogram, is usually going to be a ballpark starting dose of one gram per kilogram dosed once every three weeks. And if the patient is kind of just starting out and you're assessing treatment response, you give it about three cycles or three months to see if there is improvement. Once you get to a stable dosing and you get to a maintenance part of your treatment plan, for example, patients doing well, they've peaked or plateaued in terms of any functional improvements, and you've been at the same dose, they're not having wearing off symptoms, they're not losing functions, they're not having recurrence of their neuropathy symptoms before their next dose, then you'll start backing off of the IVIG dose. So either 10 to 25% dose, or you keep the same dose and prolong the interval. There's not really a perfect way to do it, but you pick one and reassess your predetermined functional outcome measures every couple of months or so, and just make sure that you're getting them to the lowest minimal dose without triggering a relapse or leading to a relapse. You've been listening to Clinician's Roundtable, and this episode was brought to you by CSL Baron. To access this and other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com slash clinician's roundtable, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thank you for listening.